Let's now open our copies of God's Word to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we will begin reading at verse 1 through verse 8. We will continue the series on 1 Corinthians beginning this coming Lord's Day, Lord willing. But for this morning, this passage, it will help you to remember that as the epistle originally came from the Apostle Paul, there were no chapter divisions. And so that section that deals with the inspiration and authority of the Bible that we read last week is the backdrop to what he has to say about the preaching of the Word of God in this passage this week. So now let us bow before the Lord, and then we will read. O Lord, we do pray that those of us who have found that place of refuge in the arms of the Savior, Jesus Christ, might more and more revel in His beauty and glory and greatness, and that we would desire that the Word of God be read and proclaimed in our midst faithfully, and that our hearts would receive it, and that we would be more and more conformed to the image of Thine own dear Son, Jesus Christ. And that those who may be here today or who later will listen, who are lost and undone and who do not know the Savior, that the Word of God proclaimed might be used in their hearts and lives in that strange and mysterious, effectual call, drawing them out of darkness into light, that they may also find that in Him are 10,000, indeed, infinite charms. We ask and pray these things humbly and reverently before reading the Word of God, before which we would be humbled. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen and amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand, 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 1. This is the Word of God. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. The word of the Lord, please be seated. People of God, said a great divine long ago, God had only one son, and he made him a preacher. 
I am amazed and humbled into the dust at the call that the Lord has extended to me in His grace to know Him and be saved from my sins. But I am also amazed and humbled at that effectual call that drew me and called me to be a minister of the Word of God. The calling of the minister, according to this text, is a solemn calling. And in this attitude, Paul teaches his young friend Timothy, and he helps him to see in this passage the greatness of the call to preach the Word of God. And if that call to preach His Word is great, then our call to hear the Word of God proclaimed is also great. I wonder, do you ever give thought when you read this section of Scripture that these were among the last thoughts and last words of Paul the Apostle, that he may have hours, perhaps days, before he would die, but he knew that he was about to die, that he would be taken out of this world by the Savior, that his ministry will have come to an end. And his final concern is to charge his young protege, Timothy, with the importance of continuing on in the preaching, the proclamation, the heralding of God's Word to the church and in the world. Now, the first thing that I want you to note about this charge that we see from Paul to Timothy in this passage is the solemnity of the charge. That's first, the solemnity of the charge. We read it in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. The word here, charge, could also be translated to warn or to adjure, I adjure you. It has been called a solemn, emphatic utterance. You know, few of us know what solemnity is anymore. The dignity that should belong to the house of God as we gather and worship His name has been trounced. We no longer tremble at His word as we should and are called to. We take serious things and we make light of eternal matters. The world has influenced us and we have become thoroughly casual about everything. But in this passage, in this charge... God, Christ, the judgment, the appearing of Christ, the consummated kingdom, these are the eternal realities that he brings to Timothy that should determine his ministry of the Word. And if they should determine the ministry of the Word, they also should form and determine our approach to life as believers in Jesus Christ. Are these realities on your mind and on your heart? Are these eternal realities the the truths that form your way of thinking and living? Do they grip your soul? Do they determine your decisions? There is in this passage no lack of joy. There's great joy in hearing and proclaiming the Word of God. But there is gravitas. There is sobriety. There is solemnity. There is seriousness. There is found here the weight of eternal things when it comes to the Word of God and its proclamation. 
So the solemnity of the charge. But secondly, let's see the charge itself, and that is found in verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So Timothy is called to proclaim or herald the word of God. The verb is an imperative. There are imperatives all through this passage. They just spill out all over the Greek New Testament. And so he is commanded, he is exhorted, he is called to preach that body of doctrine that he has learned from the Apostle Paul that is called in chapter 1 verse 13, the deposit or the model or the prototype for good teaching. He is a minister, the verb here, herald, the noun would be kerux, which means one who is a herald, one who is a proclaimer, one who is as an ambassador proclaiming the word of the king, one who publicly proclaims the truth. Heralds do not come up with their own message. Heralds are called to proclaim the word that is given to them by the authority over them. And so we read in Acts chapter 20 this morning that the minister of the gospel is to preach the message of the whole counsel of God, all of the truth of God as it relates to the kingdom of God that came when Jesus entered into this world. He is to proclaim this good deposit. And in the proclamation of it, he is told in verse 2 to be always ready. Is the time opportune? Then preach the gospel. Is the time inopportune? Then preach the gospel. Uh, Is there no persecution? Preach the gospel. Is there great persecution? Then preach the gospel. The minister is always on duty. Faithfulness and hardship go together. I was reminded of the story of John Berridge, the Anglican evangelical minister used in the Great Awakening, Uh, when he was called on the carpet by his bishop because he had been preaching at times that were not permitted. And the bishop complained that he had preached at times not appointed. And John Berridge said, oh, no, my Lord, that's not true. I've only preached twice. Only twice, the bishop asked? Oh, yes, my Lord, in season and out of season. And that's the call that is extended to Timothy and to all true ministers of the word. And how is he to do this? Well, he uses three terms here. All are in the imperative mood. The first two, interestingly, are negative. Only one is positive. Now, that's very telling, isn't it? Imagine a minister who might spend a good deal of his time, most of his time even, with the negative rather than the positive. That's unheard of in our day and age. The words are reprove, rebuke, exhort. To reprove means to point out sin, to point out error, what is contrary to the word with a view to conviction. To rebuke means to censure, sharply rebuke, that one might see his need. And to exhort, of course, is to urge and to admonish in light of those things and in light of the truth as it is in Jesus. And Timothy and the minister is to do this with all long-suffering and doctrine. He is to clearly teach, patiently wait. Patient shows that we believe that it's the Holy Spirit actually doing the work, that the Holy Spirit uses the minister and his message because it's God's message as means, but only the Holy Spirit can bring dead souls to life and can grow sanctified souls more and more. And so the minister must be urgent 
because the message is urgent. He must be earnest in the proclamation of the word, but never manipulative. And he is to teach with doctrine, teaching, instruction. The Christian ministry is a teaching ministry, and it is painstaking both in the very preparation and in the delivery and in the application. Because, first of all, the minister must teach his own heart. He must ask that God take these truths way down deep within his own soul, that these things be, be a part of his life and a part of his, his ministry. One minister actually said to another, he said, I found that when people grow in wanting to know the Lord, they become less interested in doctrine. Hmm. My answer to that is, when they are less interested in doctrine, they have only a vague idea of who the Lord is that they are called to know. These people you describe are in danger, and you are not a faithful minister if you encourage their attitude. Imagine my wife. If I were to say to her, the more I'm with you, the less I want to know about you. That's what that minister really was saying. No, the more that you love a person, the more you want to know that person. And it never ceases, but it grows in depth. So the minister's calling is to preach the word. It is a solemn calling. He must not let unbelief or unbelievers or the trends of the world determine what he preaches. He is called to feed and protect the flock purchased with his own blood to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And there can be no uncertain sound about this. It must be clear as a bell. It must ring forth from his heart and from his lips. And this means that preaching must be bold. When you go through the book of Acts, what do you find about the preaching there? You find that the Holy Spirit enabled boldness of preaching. A minister that loves and shows grace but doesn't hold back in saying those things that the congregation needs in order that we may get sin out of our lives and grow as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. One old divine said, courage is the soul of preaching. Courage gives power and strength to preaching. It shows the authority and majesty of the word. Well, next, let's see together the context of the charge. The context of the charge is found in verses 3 and 4. Let's read those again. For the time is coming, this is the context, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Hmm. Wow. The solemn charge to preach the truth comes as Paul looks at the development of time to come. What he said in this passage in chapter 3, that in the last days perilous times will come. And remember that as he unpacks what that means, worldly attitudes that influence the church he says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. That's going to happen in the church, the professing church, in the last days. 
And so here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, he says the time will come when people will not endure. They will not put up with sound or healthy doctrine. They cannot stand to hear the truth. Why? Because sinners love their sin. And they do not want to be rebuked for it. They don't want to change. They don't want those things out of their hearts and out of their lives. So these are the people with itching ears. Now what happens when you itch? Well, you want to scratch. And the more you scratch, the more you want to scratch. And that's what's happening in the church. Itching ears. Bishop Ellicott in his commentary says an itch for novelty. Yes, that's what it is. So they will accumulate teachers who will suit their own passions, rejecting sound doctrine. They will not endure sound preachers and preaching, and they will accumulate teachers that will stroke their sinful passions. And this they substitute for the preaching of the Word of God, of which we read in chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. They will accumulate, perhaps meaning a succession of teachers. The term means to pile up or to heap up. And so the term seems to indicate that they would like the entire church for all the rest of time to be dominated with such worldly men. They still want to be religious. They might still want to claim to be Christian, but we certainly don't want to take it too seriously, do we? And it reminds me of what Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, when he said, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? Now, isn't that where we are in the church in this country and in many others as well? I don't mean all, thank God, there are faithful churches and faithful ministers of the Word, but by and large, it's an appalling and horrible thing that has happened. The preachers preach falsehood or a mingling of truth and falsehood or hold back on the truth that should be preached, and my people love to have it so. They'll fill auditoriums with people coming to hear it. Vincent, in his word study, says, in periods of unsettled faith, skepticism, and mere curious speculation in matters of religion. Teachers of all kinds swarm like flies in Egypt. The demand creates the supply. The hearers invite and shape their own preachers. If the people desire a calf to worship, a ministerial calf maker is readily found. So people refuse to listen to the truth, he says there in verse 4 will turn away from listening to the truth. Then what? They will wander off into myths, it says. Refusing God's word, they will invent substitutes and they will turn to myths. It's a deliberate turning away or turning aside from the truth. In Paul's day, this would mean something like Jewish Gnostic myths. Today, it might mean evolution. It might mean wrong views of the atonement. It might mean false views of Scripture. It might mean secular philosophies that are unbiblical, that that are baptized by preachers in pulpits today. We can expect this sort of thing. And it probably, in most cases, will be gradual to varying degrees, and 
rather than a complete rejection of the faith and attempt to call unbiblical and worldly viewpoints Christian, the day will come, says Paul, when men will resist sound doctrine. They will resist sound doctrine. They will turn away from it. That day has come. Let's be alert. Let's be aware. That day has come when professing believers in Christ turn away from the truth as it is in Jesus. The Scriptures teach us that men only should be ordained to the offices of the church. That's not sexism. That's God's purpose and plan for the leadership of men in His church. That only those called and gifted men should be ordained to these offices. What's happening in the church? Well, because there's feminism and because we just have kind of given up on all that nowadays, leadership of men, and, and so we're just going to ordain women anyway. Set aside the Word of God. Maybe preach a lot of truth, but we'll just set that one aside. And we are deteriorating more and more and more and more the commitment to the absolute authority of the Word of God under which we are called to submit, not to ask questions of God and say, why did you do it this way? But to say, we will do what the Scriptures teach. So understand, this is not an academic matter. This is a moral issue, sinful and satanic. And listen, sanctification is about mind renewal. And so we should want our congregation, this church, to be a bastion of biblical truth and living, hear the Word with meekness, learn to retain it, begin to practice it, help our upcoming generations to get it, to understand these things, and by the blessed work of the Spirit of God that they also would be saved and would live under the authority of God's Word when all the rest of the world is falling apart. In this context, what is the call of the faithful minister? Well, we see it here in verse 5. As for you, he says to the young minister Timothy, He says to all ministers, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So you need to be sober-minded. Be sober in all things. Sober-mindedness is a present active imperative. So it's a command. It's an imperative. The present active means that it's an ongoing thing. Always be sober-minded. And the term is a wine metaphor. He is saying, Timothy... It may be that everybody around you is drunk on unfaithfulness and on on unsound teaching and unsound doctrine, but you stay sober when people are drunk on false teaching. And by implication, he says it to you also, to all of us who at any time sit under the preaching of the Word. Secondly, he says in this context, the call of the faithful minister is to endure suffering. Well, people won't listen. Well, keep teaching, but it's suffering when you preach and people don't respond. Just keep doing what you're called to do. In chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, in verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. God sustains the minister. And so Paul knows he will not always be on the scene, that Timothy must take up the mantle, and so it goes with all faithful ministers until the return of Christ. Do not blunt the edge of the hard truths that the people of God need to hear. Your aim must ever be 
to honor the king for whom you are an ambassador. So we will preach the full authority of the Word of God. We will preach the Trinity. We will preach the incarnation and particular grace and election and reprobation and particular real, penal, substitutionary blood atonement. The physical resurrection, bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the return of Christ, the clear distinction of the sexes and their roles, and all the truths that humanism hates, we will, by the grace of God, preach. And then he goes on and he says, do the work of an evangelist. And this in the context of regular pastoral labor means that the minister is to proclaim redemption from sin and the good news that all who believe in Christ will be saved. To generally proclaim a particular truth that all who believe in Christ will be saved. And the goal is to grasp that our life's work is to preach the evangel. I wonder someone who perhaps has been sitting under the ministry for a long time and you still do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you see how serious a thing it is when God-called men enter this pulpit, called and gifted of the Lord, proclaim to you that this gospel message, believe in Christ and you will be saved, and yet you have rejected and resisted and resisted. The Spirit of God can break down that rejection and that resistance and His effectual call. But I'm speaking of your responsibility at the moment. Do you realize what a solemn and awesome thing it is to reject the proclamation that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to remove the sins of any sinners? It is infinitely valuable. What a solemn thing it is to reject these eternal verities that are proclaimed time and time and time again from the pulpit here at Covenant Presbyterian Church or in other faithful churches. So do the work of an evangelist. We will continue to say to you, you need a Savior, and Christ is the only Savior. There is no other, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you may be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. None but Christ. None but Christ. And then he says to Timothy, and to all of us called to ministry, fulfill your ministry. Carry it out fully, not half-heartedly. Yes, the harder it gets, the more tenacious and clear about the truth the faithful minister must become. And all who love the truth must learn this from the minister and join in his tenacity. So pray for your ministers to be tenacious in this, to have constantly revived hearts, and that you also join with them in their tenacity to see the ministry fulfilled. We must learn to seek maturity more and more. The goal by the grace of God and my own life, and I fail miserably, but God is good, is to mature in Christ. My goal for you has always been to see this congregation mature in Christ, to see our children mature in the faith. And so I am doing all that I can to see that you are prepared not to participate in the great apostasy of the church in our day, but to be faithful through it all, even if that means that you have to do so alone. And young people, it is never too early for you to learn how to say no to those things that dishonor Jesus Christ, 
how to say no to associates that would pull you away from Jesus Christ. It is never too early to say yes to Christ and His gospel within your heart. It is never, never too early to learn to stand, even if that means to stand alone with your friends and your schools and wherever it may be. Paul does not say one thing in this passage about worldly success. Not one thing. He doesn't say a thing about how many people are there. Do you want people? Sure, you want people to hear the gospel. But that's not our focus. He doesn't say a thing in the world about money. Do we honor the Lord because He is blessed and we can continue to send missionaries and do the other things that we're called to do? Yes, but that's not our focus. He doesn't say anything about being popular. He doesn't say anything at all about being well-liked. None of those things says nothing about worldly success because the calling of preaching is all too God-centered for any of that. It's all about him. Let me remind you of the newspaper article in the Netherlands. The newspaper article said that when they were tearing down somewhere this church building to build a larger one, that they found on the left-hand entrance that there was engraved into it, man, nothing. And then they found on the right-hand side of the entrance, Christ, all and in all. Now that's it. That's what's wrong with the church today. Rather than man, nothing, man is really something. Indeed, when it comes to salvation by grace, we compromise it right and left. No, Christ is all and in all. We must be God-centered. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Our focus is on Christ and his kingdom. And so that's where our focus must be. So how do you pray for the church? R.L. Dabney said, the state of the pulpit may always be taken as an index of that of the church. Whenever the pulpit is evangelical, and he means by that in the old sense, the warm gospel truths, whenever the pulpit is evangelical, the piety of the people is in some degree healthy. A perversion is surely followed by spiritual apostasy in the church. So pray that this pulpit, this platform is always kept hot for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are you to pray for your preachers? Dabney goes on to say, when we believe and feel like a Davies, he's talking about Samuel Davies, when we believe and feel like a Davies, a Whitfield, an Ambrose, a Paul, then we may preach like them. So let us fall before our master and say, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Send, O Lord, a live coal taken from off the altar and lay it upon my mouth and say, lo, this hath touched thy lips and thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin is purged. Pray that your ministers are filled with the weight of eternal things and that they will be faithful to it. We have one more thing to see, one more point, and it's the fourth thing, encouragement to fulfill the charge, encouragement to fulfill the charge, 
and we find it in verses 6 through 8. Let's read these verses. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says, let me give you now encouragement to fulfill this ministry. He doesn't hesitate to say, look at my life. He says, for I, in the Greek text, it's in the emphatic position, I, I, my life is a drink offering. I'm just being poured out. It's a liturgical word taken from Numbers 15 and other places. His life and his death are an act of worship. Paul's life is already poured out like a drink offering. If you were in prison, would you see this as an act of worship? Would you see a ministry such as Paul's as an act of sacrifice unto God? His entire ministry had been, and he says, the time of my departure is at hand. In other words, I'm about to die. And he uses the term analuseos, loosing, which often brought with it certain metaphors. It was used when they spoke of striking a tent or setting a boat away from its moorings, cutting it from its moorings. And very possibly, one of these metaphors would have, would have been heard by Timothy or by others who read the epistle. And so Paul is saying, I'm, I'm ready to strike the tent. I won't be here much longer. I'm about to die. So looking back, Paul says... I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul believed the gospel. Paul preached the gospel. Paul defended the gospel. He held fast to the gospel. He passed on the gospel, and he would die in the faith of the gospel. And here he is, old, not by the way in which we count old years, but an old man, worn out. He's been stoned. He's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked. He's but he's dying faithfully. Someone has said, how great is the tragedy when Christians and particularly ministers become disqualified in old age. Pray that we will not be disqualified. Paul kept the faith. He was faithful to the good deposit, the sound doctrine, the life-giving truth of the gospel, so that soon he would come to, tradition tells us, to the Ostian Road, brought there by Roman soldiers. They would place his head there on the block and they would chop off that wonderful preacher's head. And we were also told that a woman, a saint of God, in the church there at Rome, took his head and buried it on her own property on the Ostian Road. Did it happen precisely like that? I don't know, but he kept the faith, brothers and sisters. Are we keeping the faith? One way Paul did this was by constantly kindling within his heart his hope for the future. And that's why he says in verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The crown of righteousness. 
He looks forward to entering into the perfect state of moral righteousness when he loses his head. The garland is already laid up for Paul the Apostle. You know, there was or is an inscription in the British Museum. It was taken from the theater in Ephesus of a combatant in the second century that says, he fought three fights and was twice crowned with wreaths, using many of the words that the Apostle Paul uses here in the Greek New Testament. How much greater is that victory to which Paul looks and to which we also should look and will be awarded to all who have loved Christ's appearing, a gift God will give on the basis of Jesus' blood and righteousness to all who have loved His appearing. It's a perfect tense, meaning it's a continuous characteristic. Does this characterize our lives as it should? I really fear that it it often doesn't. Not in most cases. We're too wrapped up in the things of this world to live in the characteristic of those things that have not yet appeared to us. The more we feel that this world is not our home, the more we will live for the appearing of the Savior who will come to wind up what he has for this age. Now, almost certainly, Paul is contrasting what the human judge Nero will soon do to him and what the the judge of all the earth has for him. And that's what we need to consider. Whatever men can do to me, they cannot take Christ from me. They cannot take my soul from me. They cannot take salvation by grace from me. What really matters in this world is the world to come. So I ask you, do you long for that day? Is this front and center in your life? Matthew 25, 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Titus 2, 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the great appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, 28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. People of God, the hope of Christ's return is the voice of divine love piercing the darkness of this world from eternity, which communicates, yes, my children, you suffer now. But the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that awaits you. And so the call of this text is not only to Timothy or to preachers of the Word, but to all of us to love Christ's appearing. And so I exhort you, live under the Word, lift high the cross, live for eternity, look for His coming, And in that day, cast your crowns at the feet of your Savior and your Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.